Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. It's good to be with you again. Thank you, Yumi, for reading the passage for us this morning. Um, Starting next week, we're going to launch into a whole new series that I will introduce through email this week. Um, But for this Sunday, I want to preach a standalone message um, based on what we're going through right now as a country and some thoughts and convictions that I believe are important for us to keep in mind. The title of our message is The Servant King. And as Yumi read, it's drawing from Matthew chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. And I want to start with a story. Um, in the early years of my ministry, a friend invited me to speak at his church in another state. And uh, he was tied up with things, and so he couldn't pick me up at the airport. And so he sent one of the leaders at their church to pick me up. And he, this guy and I had never met before, so we didn't know what the other person looked like. Apparently... My friend must have talked me up and maybe sound like a spiritual giant or something because when I got to the airport and I exited a baggage claim, I saw a guy that I suspected might be my ride, but he looked right at me and then right past me and kept looking and scanning the crowd. So I was a little confused, but eventually we found each other and I said, hey, how come you looked right past me the first time? And as we were eating lunch on the way to the, the retreat, he confessed, well, here's the truth. Um, our pastor told us all about you, and I just kept picturing this certain kind of person as he was describing your deeds. I was also attaching some physicality, and you didn't look anything like how I pictured you would look. So I wasn't sure how to take that, if that was a compliment because my deeds were great, or if <laughs> it was an insult because I looked puny in person. But it, it was a, it's a funny story to illustrate that sometimes... We expect something, and when it doesn't match our expectations, we miss it even if it's right in front of us. I mean, the Jewish people had a lot of prophecies that pointed them towards how to recognize the Messiah who would be coming. And the Messiah was a deliverer that God would send who would restore Israel and the whole world to what we would call justice, to a place where everything is in right relationship with everything else, And the world is as it should be. But when that Messiah finally arrived in the person of Jesus Christ, the vast majority of Jewish people completely missed him. He was right in front of them, God in the flesh. And they not only failed to recognize him, but ultimately called for his killing. To be fair, though, their confusion is somewhat understandable. Some of the prophecies about the Messiah describe a mighty, conquering king. And that fits really well with the picture you have. Uh, You can imagine if someone um, who looked really leader-like and great walked out of that airport, that friend would have recognized me right away. But it's that idea of like, we have a picture of what a deliverer should look like. And in some of those passages, it describes him as a mighty, conquering king who will crush his enemies, and who will be triumphant in victory. And those were prophecies that were easy to accept. But in a few passages in Isaiah, there are other prophecies that describe the coming Messiah in really strange and confusing terms. Uh, These passages have come to be known as the servant songs, 
And there are three in particular in the book of Isaiah that describe the coming Messiah in really unexpected terms. It describes him as lowly and disfigured, ugly and unattractive, and as one who would come to suffer and ultimately die, not as a leader, but as a servant. These are images so contradictory that it led some to believe that the triumphant king Messiah and this suffering servant Messiah couldn't possibly be the same person. And so we fast forward to this passage in Matthew where Matthew is writing and he's quoting Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, which is the first half of one of those servant songs. And what he's saying here, very importantly, is that Messiah, which was promised as a suffering servant, is in fact Jesus Christ. But that this Jesus is also identified with the conquering King Messiah that the other prophecies foretold. Both of those pictures of the Messiah are present in this one person, who is Jesus. Now, the reason that Matthew is going to great lengths to to draw on that passage from Isaiah is because he's trying to show the contrast in that moment of what's going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. He's trying to contrast Jesus to the way the Pharisees were. And the Pharisees were the religious establishment of that day. They were the ones who held power in their society. And they were using their power to plot against Jesus in order to kill or destroy him because he was a threat to the power they held. And that's the aspect of this whole thing that I want to focus on this morning is the way leaders use power and the way we respond to that power. Jesus had a really strange relationship with power. It's undeniable he had certain forms of power. Throughout the Gospels, you see people who, when they meet him, are immediately drawn to him, transformed, moved by him. He had clearly a a depth of wisdom, even as a young boy, that surprised older people. And without doubt, he had supernatural power. He was performing miracles left and right. And yet, in spite of these demonstrations of real power, he also completely unplugged, and hence our image on the slides today, he unplugged from all the traditional forms of power that most people of influence try to tap into in order to create change in the world. When you look at verse 14, it says that the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Now, how had things come to this point? Why were religious leaders forming a conspiracy to kill another religious leader? Well, we, we, if we read a little further back in Matthew chapter 12, what we discover is Jesus had run afoul of them because he tackled head-on this idea of the Sabbath, which was one of the sacred cows of the Jewish faith. You can mess with a lot of things, but you didn't mess with the Sabbath if you were a Jew. I won't go into detail on how he messed with the Sabbath idea, but let's just say that every rule about this sacred day, Jesus changed in some way. He reinterpreted Most people who are trying to gain influence and change the world don't start by tackling the established power structures and especially going after the things they hold the most sacred. Most people who are trying to effect change usually climb that ladder. They they take advantage of networking with people who have positions of influence and authority. But not Jesus. He immediately went after 
those who held power but weren't using it for the purposes of God. When you look at verse 15 then, um, Jesus heard about this death threat and he decided to leave. So it says, aware of this, this plot to destroy him, Jesus withdrew from that place. And when he left, a large crowd followed him and he healed all in that crowd who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. So here's another strange picture of Jesus' relationship with power. When he decides to run away from this death threat, large crowds follow him, which is exactly what people want today if they want to have influence, is the whole point is to draw as large a following as you can. Right? Uh, uh, you know, in, ancient, in the ancient world, you would say, I have followers, that means disciples who physically follow you. Today, when you see you have followers, that means you have a lot of people who clicked a button on, on a phone and decided they're going to follow everything you say and do. And nonetheless, the number of followers we have today is still the same measure of status and influence that it was in the ancient world. When Jesus had large crowds following, the admiration and the affirmation of those crowds was not something he relished or used. Again and again, when crowds followed, he ran away. He withdrew. He would leave those crowds. And even more, when those crowds persisted in following and he performed miracles and they were marveling over it and wanting to spread the word, he would always say to them, don't tell anyone what you saw here. Don't tell anybody else what I did. Now, Jesus is a publicist's nightmare because he's running away from crowds and he's trying to silence good PR. I mean, what kind of person who wants to change the world does that? This is every form of power that people today of influence are looking to gain and Jesus pushed it away. When you look at verse 17, Matthew explains why He's doing all this. He's referring to this particular servant song in Isaiah. It was to show that um, everything Jesus was doing was fulfilling the picture of the Messiah as a suffering servant, the servant of the Lord, that was prophesied by Isaiah so long ago. Even though Jesus didn't fit people's picture and expectation of what the Isaiah's prophecies were supposed to look like, um, he wanted to establish that this is, in fact, the person we've been waiting for. And in verses 18 to 21 of Matthew's chapter 12 here, he begins quoting directly Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Now, I want to just um, uh, publicly acknowledge that I'm really indebted to Kim, Tim Keller whose really clear thinking on Isaiah 42 really helped me uh, break through certain things and understand. And so I am really grateful to him for some of the ideas that I learned from him, which then formed some of the bedrock for the message that I want to bring to you this morning. Jesus accomplished his mission in the world by unplugging himself from the typical ways that people use power when they're trying to change the world. When you look at verse 18, this is the first line of that servant song, which Matthew is quoting. I want to point out two words in verse 18 that are important. The first is justice, and the second is servant. Justice is simply this. The idea of justice, especially in the Hebrew usage of it, is making things right that are not right at all. That's not an un unusual concept, is it? Like when you look at the world, you don't have to be a theologian or philosopher to know. Nothing 
down here is exactly the way it's supposed to be. The world is broken. It, there's a lot here that is a mess because things aren't in right relationship to other things. And that includes people. It includes systems. It includes groups. Nothing quite works the way God intended it to. And so there is injustice. And injustice is more than just breaking the law or doing something that is um, unethical. It is participating in the brokenness of everything. And Jesus had a mission to proclaim and to establish justice. And that included um, convicting people of their wrongdoing, but it also really included finding a pathway to restoring peace and shalom, the way that things are supposed to be in this world and in the life to come. Justice is setting right a world that has gone wrong. And this was his mission, and yet Isaiah and Matthew both point out that the way God chose to accomplish that mission was through someone who is described as a servant, not a leader. You know, when I'm upset at a store, I never shout, let me see the assistant manager. I always say, let me see the manager. Um, Whenever there's a problem in our world and we want to fix it, our instinct is to turn to the person who has the most influence and the most authority. You go to the top to fix what's broken. And yet, what God says is, even though Jesus was the Son of God, God Himself, His identification, the way He was described is, I am a servant when I come here to proclaim justice to the world. I think it's a great reminder and encouragement to us that even if we don't have a position of power and authority as the world sees it, we can still very effectively participate in God's mission of setting a wrong world right through the power and message of Jesus Christ. In verse 19, he says another very surprising thing about this servant of the Lord, the Messiah who would come to establish justice. He says, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Now just let that sit in your mind for a second. How counterintuitive a statement that is about someone whose mission is to change the world and make the wrong things right is that he robs himself of one of the primary tools leaders today try to use to affect change, and that is their voice. Now, don't get me wrong. I, 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 don't, I don't believe what Isaiah is saying is that Jesus never spoke up. He did. He was quite outspoken, but here's what it does mean. He didn't try to amplify his voice in the public square in the context of arguing with and debating people who were his opponents. It's important to remember at this point that there's two kinds of justice. And probably a little over a month ago, I I preached on this topic of justice and pointed out that there's two broad kinds of biblical justice that we typically think about. And for most of us, the kind we think about is what we call retributive justice or retribution. Justice as retribution, which is another way of saying um, retributive justice seeks to punish unrighteousness. It finds something wrong and says, you will pay for what you did to make that right. That's a valid form of biblical justice, and it is in view throughout the the scriptures. But, and, and by the way, often that kind of justice requires us to speak up. It requires us to point out that which is being hidden, and that is important. But there's another sense of justice, and that is the majority case of the way it's used in scripture, and that is what we call restorative justice. 
That is not about punishing unrighteousness, but it is about promoting righteousness. And both are important pictures of justice. Whenever we talk about justice, today in our culture, almost entirely, it's, it's about retributive justice and about punishing wrongdoing. But the kind of justice Jesus was deeply committed to was also restorative justice and the promotion of righteousness structurally placed in the world and practiced life by life. Jesus pursued this kind of justice, restorative justice, without shouting in the public square. Really what that means is that when people shouted defamatory things, critical things about him, he didn't spend his energy rebutting them or engaging in discourse with them. He said, you can believe that, but I have a mission here, and that is what I'm here to do. You know, like many of you, I I watched Tuesday's presidential debate uh, with a rising sense of disbelief and embarrassment. Those are two polite words to describe what I was emotionally feeling watching. It was like watching two immature schoolboys arguing at recess. There was very little that felt presidential. There was little dialogue. There was almost no decorum. And I have to say that that debate showed us the ugliness and the futility of shouting at other people without doing any listening. It doesn't really strengthen my position, and it doesn't strengthen the rising of truth in community. It just looks ugly and is futile. But I'm glad that we got to see that because I think the debate also held up a mirror to all of us as citizens that it's not any less ugly when we do it. It's not any less futile when we do it. And we may not have a national stage, but on social media and in in cars and in conversations over the, the, the next door neighbor's fence, we're often doing the same thing. We are shouting at the top of our lungs, trying to reshape public discourse. And we're doing no listening. And we're not engaging in any kind of meaningful dialogue that changes hearts and minds. Now, I'm not saying that you should never speak up, but we should not pin our hope on public discourse and shouting in the streets as a way of effecting the kind of change and justice in our world that God is seeking. That may be the way the world pictures justice, and it may focus entirely on our voice. But Jesus focused more on his heart and his hands than just his voice. Let me give you one last picture that comes out of the servant song that I think is such a compelling picture of the kind of person Jesus was and how he affected change and brought justice. If you look at verse 20, says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. Our servant king not only speaks softly, but he treads very gently. Now you see in verse 20 there that the word bruised, a bruised reed. That word in English is not a very forceful word, is it? When you say, oh, did you get hurt? Like if we were playing softball and a ball hits a divot and it hits you really hard, you might say, oh, are you hurt? And what normally we would say to dismiss the pain is, oh, no, it it just bruised me. 
I just got a bruise, that's all. So for us, a bruise is a relief. It's not major damage. But the Hebrew word standing under the word bruised is really, and even the word itself sounds kind of like what it means. The Hebrew word is ratzatz. <laughs> ratzatz doesn't sound casual. And, and it's exactly what it sounds like. The better translation of the word bruised in Hebrew is crushed. It refers to impact or damage that is so intense that even if it doesn't break the skin, it crushes what's underneath. And that's the nature of the pain and brokenness in a lot of people's lives is on the surface. You can see a little black and blue. You see some markings, but you may think, oh, it's nothing. But underneath, something important has been crushed, a vital organ, something important to life. And that damage is hemorrhaging and it's killing the person. Often this word, bruised, ratzatz, was used as describing a death blow. The kind of wound you would get in a battle that you would dismiss and say, oh, it's just a bruise, but then underneath, it is killing you. And that really describes the state of some people's lives, doesn't it? That when we look at you from the outside, we can't really see from this distance the depth of hurt and damage that you're carrying around every day. And little by little, something inside of you is really dying. And when you look at that picture of the broken reed, you realize that if you're a gardener and you see that, if you're a farmer and you see that, there's nothing you can do to repair that broken reed. It's not like you can tie rubber bands around it to a chapstick and keep it upright. It won't heal itself. A broken reed stays broken. It can't bear fruit anymore. It's not useful to put into a flute or use as a pen or writing instrument. All the reasons that we value a reed at all have been stripped away the minute it snapped in half. And so anyone walking through a field or a garden would see a broken reed and they would pluck it out and throw it away. That's what you do. Because it's lost its usefulness and its value. If that describes where your life and your heart are right now, then one of the biggest mistakes you can do is put all your hope in other people. Other people will not be as protective of you and the damage you're carrying inside as Jesus is. Although His mission was global in scope to bring justice to the whole world, how strange in the middle of all that that He pauses to say, but when I see a bruised reed, I'm very careful. I treat it tenderly. I don't just stomp through the fields trying to march toward victory. I pause to see that bruised reed, and I care. There's a kind of damage that happens to a person so deep, other people cannot actually mend it. And yet the invitation is this, Jesus Messiah, the servant of the Lord, he can mend that broken reed. That's not enough. He gives us one more picture. He says, a smoldering wick I will not snuff out. That's the description of the Messiah. If you look at this picture, you realize a smoldering wick is a candle about to flicker out. It's the flame that's just about to extinguish. And when a candle and a wick get to that place, what happens is it gives off very little light and a lot of smoke. And most people find that annoying, not very useful, and so they snuff it out. 
That describes a lot of people's lives too. That there's a flame that once was lit inside, a faith, a love, a zest or zeal for living, a desire to engage the world. And that flame is about to go out. And when a person's flame is on the edge of extinguishing, often what happens is the light they used to give off, they stop giving off. There's a darkness or a dimness that surrounds them, that aura. They also give off a lot of smoke, which isn't particularly pleasant or useful to anybody. No one really likes candle smoke in their face. And so, as a result, a lot of people find that when you're at that place where your flame is about to go out, they don't draw much value from you. They don't get encouraged by you. In fact, they're often annoyed by the things that you say or the atmosphere you bring into a room. And so you'll notice little by little that people who at first care begin to weary of that flickering flame in your heart. And they start to avoid you or in some cases just snuff you out and say, could you please stop hanging out with us? We can't be around you because it, it sucks the life out of us. That's hard, isn't it? Because that flame matters. It's at the heart of who you are. And when it's about to flicker out, it's really hard to be in that place. And even when people do care enough to try, it's really not wise to turn to other people to save you from that state of affairs because even the ones who want to help don't always know how to help. Sometimes they'll say exactly the wrong thing for exactly the right reason because we don't know other people the way God knows them. Jesus sees what is invisible to others when He looks at you. He knows exactly what you're going through. And even if you try to describe it to a loved one, you never feel like you quite got it, do you? But He sees. And even the ones who try and get it wrong, here's the other part of it, you may not even know what's wrong with you or what it's going to take to relight that flame in your heart. You've tried different things, none of them worked, and so maybe you're even at a place where I'm not sure how that's going to happen, I want it to happen, but I don't even know what it's going to take. And this is why the invitation is to turn to Jesus. Because other people only see the dimness and the smoke but Jesus sees inside you and He says, that's the flame that I can put back on. And He will remain. He says, I don't just walk past bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, plucking them out of the ground and snuffing them out. I pause and I will remain until justice is brought to victory. Not just in the world, but in that broken life. No one else makes that promise to us. No one else has the power to back that promise up. If this is the way Jesus works in the world to bring about change and salvation, doesn't it stand to reason that we who follow Him should start to look more like Him and to relate to power the way that He does and to work for change in some of the ways that He does? I'm reminded every year at the Grip Gala that while it's important for us to work for structural change that levels the playing field, what really touched those lives was the love of Jesus transferred from one life to another in a committed, loving, selfless relationship. I don't want to pit one against the other, but I'm telling you that even as we fight against unjust systems 
and create structural change. None of that guarantees that every person it covers will be helped. But what does affect real change in the life of people is the love of God who doesn't walk past bruised reeds and snuff out smoldering wicks. We should relate to power the way Jesus does, saying no to currying favor with people of power, trying to stay in good graces of people who hold influence but don't really use that influence for God's purposes. We should say no to avoiding topics and positions that are controversial. Jesus tackled their idolatry of the Sabbath head on and said you're protecting a day, but you forgot to honor the God for whom that day is set apart. We shouldn't be afraid to tackle and take positions and tackle issues that will make us controversial and unpopular if it promotes the work of God in this broken world. We should say no to seeking validation in the admiration and affirmation of large crowds of people because sometimes those crowds have got it wrong. We should say no to obsessing over multiplying and amplifying our voice and our platform, especially when it, when it is reduced to just shouting in the public square, trying to talk over people without hearing or being heard. We should say no to seeking to leverage reputation more than real character and restorative work. Have you ever seen someone you thought was great stoop to do something so humble, so lowly and human that it got your attention? Even when no cameras were around, when no eyes were on them, you just happened to catch them doing something that was so real. Now let me ask you, did that make you think less of the person or more? Here's someone who should be so high, doing something so low. Isn't it strange how our, in, our immediate reaction is to think more greatly of that person, to say, how is it that someone so important, so powerful, would stoop to notice this person, this situation? Not because it elevates their image, but because it was the right and righteous thing to do. This is the beauty of Jesus. And if we respond to human leaders this way, I want you to consider how beautiful Jesus is. That in this one person, we see infinite greatness and unbelievable lowness mixed in the same person. Doesn't it stand to reason that if we will join Him in the work of proclaiming justice to the world, that we ought to become more like Him. And this seemingly contradictory set of values and qualities that we see in Jesus should also be in us. Harvest, I want to invite you to think about the way you engage in the desire to see God change the world, to make what is wrong right. Because there is a way that the world does it, and there is a way that Jesus did it. It's important that we do act up and speak up when it's required of us. But ultimately, our faith is not just in our action, but in the power of God. And that's why when we don't use the world's means and still accomplish God's great ends, people take notice and they ascribe the credit to God and not to us. We're thinking a lot about what leading looks like. 
and how change happens these days. And I hope this reminder will challenge all of us to rethink the way that we engage our world and the way that we pray. I'm going to invite you to pause with me now and uh, let's just let God continue the sermon now at an individual level to each of our hearts. And when we're done praying and reflecting, um, the praise team will lead us in the final song and I'll return and close our service together with a benediction. Jesus was a very surprising figure and he did what no one else could have ever done. And he did it in ways that most others would never try. He is beautiful beyond imagining and he's surprising in how unconventional and unexpected he is. If you are that bruised reed or that smoldering wick, turn to Jesus because he alone sees and he knows just what to do and say. He will not ditch you or abandon you. He will stay with you until things are made right. Trust him, turn to him, and lean on him. And if you are one of the people who's who are fighting to see this world become more just, more righteous, more honoring of God. Receive the challenge not to fight as the world fights, but to fight in a way that the credit and the attention go to God and and fight in a way that your faith is in Him and not just in what you say and do. Harvest, I pray that God will use us to join Him in his mission to proclaim justice and bring it to victory in the world. And I pray that he will do it through his power and not the world's. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be blessed now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.